Welcome to Patriots of the Core. I'm Thad Forrester. This podcast exists because of my little brother, Mark Forrester. He was angered by the attacks on 9-11, so he joined the military to help rid the world of terrorists. On September 29, 2010, he was killed on his first deployment. From his death notification to the dignified transfer ceremony, his viewing, funeral, and subsequent memorials, I was amazed at the new world of warriors we met. These patriots have become close to our family and been huge supports. They stood out because of their willingness to voluntarily fight evil. They believed in freedom. Because of their actions, I started this podcast to interview great Americans who serve their country and communities. Thank you for tuning in. Rich Brown, welcome to Patriots of the Core. Thanks for coming in person. I'm honored to be here. This is round two for us. It's been a while. It is. So episode 51, back in 2018, Rich was here. And I'm going to go to this view here. So I'm going to start out with a little statement from your book. Then we'll talk about it. I got a whole hodgepodge of stuff here. So we're gonna, we may just skip around. Hey, no problem. All right. So this is while you were a police officer in the city redacted, uh, whatever city that was in Tennessee. Uh, however, complacency had gotten the best of me. This was just Michael Penny. So I didn't put him down. Thir- I didn't pat him down thoroughly. Once at booking, Michael was standing in handcuffs when I found a giant knife on a string running down the leg of his red trousers. As I disarmed him, I asked, Michael, what were you planning to do with this knife? He said, kill you. The lesson has stuck with me. Never get complacent and never underestimate anyone. Interesting story there because when you first, I guess, were a, I guess, were you, was this, you were a police officer and he was just a local kind of bum around town and not even a bum just kind of a simpleton you know um like i say in the book a classic example of what michael would do is you know he would be walking down he was always out walking on the street and when he when it was raining out i think he had a bad interaction with drugs or something because he he looked normal but he made these really bizarre life choices (laughs) and uh, he'd be walking down the road and it's raining and when the rain would stop he would just walk right into an apartment complex, strip down completely naked, throw his stuff in the dryer. And of course, somebody would freak out when they saw a full-grown naked man standing there. And he's like, ah. <laughs> and he would come to court and because um, he was constantly getting arrested for these kind of things. And he would come to court wearing this little beanie that had like a propeller on top of it. I mean, just he was a very odd person. So anyway, yeah. and, and But he was deemed harmless, you know. Yeah. And uh, the the flack I got when I first got there was, you know, this is Michael. I won't say his last name. This is because it's not Penny. <laughs> this is Michael. You know, you, Rich, you know, chill out, bro. Because I was fresh out of the academy and the Marine Corps. And I'm, you know, want to do the right thing. And and, and he had always been just, just a, a simpleton, is a polite way to say it, until he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And as I say in the book, we should have known something was up because he wasn't normally out at night. He was just roaming the streets at, at, during the day. So as a first shift officer, when I first got there, I dealt with him quite a bit. But here he is out on the, in the middle of the night, dressed all red, head to toe. That should have been a signal. Something is off. Uh, but I didn't pick it up. And uh, like I say in the book, I hip toss him to the ground, put him in handcuffs. And I'm thinking, Michael, you know, no big deal. Take him there. And, and then I saw something down his leg. And I, I'm, he's lucky he didn't get cut when I took him to the ground because we're talking about a large kitchen butcher knife. And was it kind of dangling? It, well, that's just it. To show that he was serious about it, he had found some bungee cord. So it was actually tied, uh, tied onto his uh, pants. And the, it, so it was a bungee. It could actually stretch and stab if he had to. But when you didn't hold it, it kind of retracted to about six inches hanging there. It ended up being a nothing burger, but it was just one of those kind of things like, whoa. Yeah. Well, I thought back to when you were the, you had the police encounter. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't pat you down. (laughs) Yeah. They didn't pat you down. And, and you had made a point. It's like a mental, mental notes like, hey, never not pat someone down. And I fell into my own trap, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's exactly right. I was standing there smiling, talking to the cops like this, and I got my hand on a, loaded glock 17 and uh and and i'm just standing there going oh, okay if they decide to pat me down here we're, we're going to jail <laughs> well your book let's see here on violence and varietals did i even say that right yeah uh, sure I mean, you use i mean you're a you're a savage psalm <laughs> and um 
so I'll have links to this. I mean, I'm, I'm holding it up here for the viewers, but th the book had to be written. I've, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I also realized that I have lived probably the most boring life there is out there, apparently. I mean, because you said this covers your first 26 years of life. Yeah. I mean, that's like like four lifetimes right there, it sounds like. I mean, everything you've gone through and experienced, and there, there's no way to cover it all. But I wanted to start out with uh, life as a, or the mentality of a police officer. Sure. And I've thought about this a lot, especially if we go back to like, I remember, I guess I'm going to go back to like Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin mm -hmm. and all these, when all these protests started over race. Mm -hmm. And I remember these images of seeing people just yelling in policemen's face. Policemen may just be standing guard, yelling horrible things. And then it's, it got worse in 2020 mm -hmm. with BLM movement. And what is the mentality? And for you, and you may, you, you were retired by then, but still you, you had your own, um, your own violent encounters, many of them, and just even as, even as a police officer, what's the mentality? And are, are you, do you get scared? Or are you like, no, I'm ready, you know, game on, let's do it. Yeah, I think that's a, I, that was the question. I'm like, how do I answer this correctly? Because we had sent them ahead to me. I'm like, huh. because I think everybody's different. Everybody approaches their, their profession differently. And in the book, you know, I, I say these are like the five types of people that join the, the police department, mm -hmm. right? And I, everybody comes to this job differently. And so for me, it's like, okay, they're here to exercise their First Amendment right. There's a line. And when that line is crossed, you know, you assault me or you spit on me or you, you do some of these things, you're, you're going down. And th these lines should be well drawn in advance by whoever your uh, corporal sergeant is or whatever. So in that regard, it's like, hey, man, I'm just going to hang out, let you blow off steam and, and, and have a nice day until that lines cross and then it's like you know the poodle becomes something other than a poodle because uh that's they're there they're upset and let them they're americans let them say what they're going to say but it the minute the spit flies or a brick flies or whatever it's game on so he's going to jail and rightly so so i never <clears throat> as far as fear goes maybe i'm too stupid to fear fi to fear uh to feel fearful <laughs> uh, that's debatable, but yeah, I, I, I think that's about the only way I could answer that. Cause everybody's going to feel the same way. If you've never been in a violent encounter and that's your first one and you're mm -hmm. a brand new cop and you're out there and somebody's screaming two inches in front of your face and there's a whole gang of them behind you, it's, it's, I wouldn't, it's very terrifying. I can only imagine, but if it ain't your first rodeo, you're like, Hey man, you know, they're, it's obviously by their, their posture. They, they just want to be on camera. Somebody's filming an iPhone. They're wanting to get some street cred, let them, let them blow off. And then they'll go away. What about when you're at home, like it's a day off and you're seeing the news and you're like, this is what I'm walking into tomorrow or your wife sees it. How, how does that go? And does that affect your, your approach at all? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Because you know, that's the external pressures that are for me worse than the actual events. Because I, when I go out, when I used to go out, and this was a long time ago when I was a police officer, but I would, you know, say a prayer, today's the day. Whatever you want to take that to mean, today's the day I got to save somebody, you know, pull a cat out of a tree, whatever, or, you know, confront it with a lethal force situation, whether I'm using it or somebody's using it on me. But when you take all into that into account and then you apply the pressure of, we've got to make the mortgage payment or the baby's sick or yeah, the wife is like, I, I don't want you going out there anymore. Why are you doing this? Why are you taking that shift? Can't, you know, it's like, Hey, <laughs> I got a job to do. Let's just look at it. Like I was a plumber and the, I got to go clean the pipes, you know, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly you know, appreciate the service you've done. I mean, you have put your life in danger and uh, enormous amount of times and we'll hopefully cover some of that here. Uh, what about your childhood? How would you describe your childhood in a, you know, in a short, you know, sentence or two? We moved around a lot. And I say that that's, I think that's the start of my childhood chapter. We moved around a lot. And I think seven moves in one year was is still the family record. So the, the, my childhood chapter is entitled gypsies because it just seemed that way. Uh, and I didn't know any different then. Um, my mother had mental health issues, which compounded the problems of uh, her parenting style. 
And um, I'm a pretty conservative guy, you know, pretty rigid, logical, analytical. My mother was just complete chaos all the time. So our we were never, ever going to mesh. She's passed away now. Um, I miss her dearly. My dad, uh, who may watch this, he's found YouTube now. <laughs> he watches YouTube on his phone, so he might be watching YouTube. <laughs> but no, dad, dad was aloof, and uh, he wanted the glory of being the, the hotshot guy that could solve the problems at work. And he chased that, that dollar and, and his career all around the world. So he was constantly gone, and he was moving us. So uh, that pretty much defined it. And being the new guy in every new town meant, at least back in the 70s and, and early 80s, you know, a lot of fistfights. I guess, you know, we didn't have an iPhone to play with, so you just punch people in the face back then. But things were different. And um, so you grow up quick. Yeah. And I was the oldest, too, and stuff like that, latchkey kid. Um, but anyway, maybe maybe typical for a, a southern uh, family, I don't know. Well, you you got in a really bad fight with a kid from California mm. once, and and I guess he just beat the dog out of beat you. Beat the yes. And your parents, dog. your mom and dad, reacted differently. How, how was what was their reactions? Yeah, uh, you know, I thought about that. That's probably one the the story of how my dad came out and kind of you know flipped a cigarette in the yard and just really didn't care. It's actually it's it's worse than that because I've been thinking about uh, that instance a lot i'm like you know what i think i may have gotten that one wrong that's one of the things in the book i think that is probably factually incorrect in reality it was um somehow ended up i think my brother jeff went up and told him my dad was taking a nap and said you know richie got beat up and uh tell him to come up here so i went up there and he saw how my face was bloody my eyes were swollen and he gave me a little speech about pride which was just you know it was just ridiculous. I didn't need to hear it. And it was completely inapplicable. Un- I'm 10 years old, and I'm like, this is not sound parenting right mm-hmm. here. This is ridiculous. <laughs> then my mom came home, and she went nuts. And uh, we're going down there. And the only reason that that story's in the book is because, because I'm sure a lot of people have had the ground and pound done to them. I mean, this is nothing new here. However, it really set me off on a lifetime of this is not going to happen again. I don't care what we have to do. This this is unacceptable because I'm never going to be in this position. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of your dad, though, th- there is one paragraph in the book when you're a bouncer, and I, I'm not. I didn't know how to take this. This man blows smoke in your face a few times. You punch him so hard. You say you're you're you wanted to punch through to his spine. Mm-hmm. Was that really your dad? As far as blowing smoke in my face, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he's still very careless with where he blows it, and it just infuriates me because I'm not a smoker. Mm-hmm. I think it's the most disgusting human habit there is. No, you know, take full offense smokers out there. I just yeah, can't stand yeah. it. Anyway, so um, and I still to this day don't know what he did, why he did it. He just just as casual as you could be, and just we're six inches away because I'm about to pat him down, and just full on. It wasn't an accident. It was just like yeah. I don't know if I had had a problem with him before. And he came back a oh, day or a week later because I wouldn't remember the guy. And uh, I just I couldn't believe it. And when he did it again, I'm like, okay. And I did. I'd never, ever, ever considered it. You know, that's like one of the day one karate class one, the, the horse stance and punch to the solar plexus. It's just ridiculous, right? Until it wasn't. Until I, like, okay, here we go. And uh, I was really shocked. I mean, the dude crumpled to the ground. It was insane how effective that punch was. I, I had to read that twice and make it. I was like, well, wait a minute. Was that really his dad? No, it wasn't <laughs> my dad, but I could see it. You know, I could see my father disrespecting me like that. Uh-huh. That's, That's what, what I wondered. Was. Yeah, and it was just like, whew. And you, you, know? you, took, you used that to increase your, <laughs> your aggression, I guess. It was all the, the years of, of uh, what I felt as disrespect yeah. to me as a child, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, just it came out in one punch, you know. Man, describe that moment when I know we're hopping around a lot, sure. but you've got you've got so much that can be covered that just I guess it, we can throw a dart on a wall and just pick anything. You got some awesome stories. The moment when you came home from one of your deployments hmm. and you you hug Lisa, your wife, and uh-huh. you say you felt like you're, you know you're going to break her back, or anyway, you squeezed her to death, yeah. and you had your new your new baby girl there too. describe that moment of seeing her your wife and then 
your baby, especially maybe after what y'all been through the last few years in your, your early days of your marriage? I think the question, and in the book I talk about uh, military reunifications, because if you're, if you're not in the military and 99% of Americans have never had any experience in the military, then you don't know how military reunification works. And that's the only one where Lisa wasn't there. She didn't make the trek all the way to Lejeune to, to be there. So traveling to her was, was something a little bit unique. And, you know, I, I literally, the Caroline, our first child, was three months old. And I just remember being like, holy wow. You know, the, the fatherhood is real now. You know, it's mm-hmm. theoret- theoretical before, but the weight of that warm little child in my hands. And it's like, like my life just changed forever. And I'm sure every new parent feels that way. But for those that have had to deploy while your child was born, you know what I'm talking about. You return and, and there the, the baby is. It's like, wow, when I left, it was me and my wife. And now our life. Now, now, and the other thing what's interesting is Lisa had settled into three months of, of motherhood. She had this thing kind of She's got it really under control and could kind of shepherd me into the process. Mm-hmm. And like, hey, you know, Rich, this is Caroline. This is how we tend to Caroline. Can you help me? Can you pick that up over there? Uh, which was cool. We weren't trying to figure it out together. She had had three months of, of really good life experience mm-hmm. that she could teach me on the fly. Man, we all had been through it. I mean, did you do? You, how about talking about your uh, your relationship while you were deployed? She wrote you a letter at one point and mm-hmm. said she wanted a divorce. Mm-hmm. How did you take that, and then what did you do with that? Because I don't, I don't know at what point you you started dating that girl. I don't know how much time went by, but yeah, how did you deal with that news from her? I was pretty, I was pretty upset. I don't say this in the book, but you know the the Philippines back then, and that part of the Philippines was later destroyed by um, in the uh, epilogue. I talk about real Sodom Gomorrah. I mean the the. Places that I talk about and the debauchery that was going on, it was as if God just wiped it off mm-hmm. uh, like six months later. Anyway, so what ended up happening was I was taking a lot of – all the Marines wanted to go out in town and, and party. So Rich Brown, the little Southern Baptist kid from Tennessee, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll stand your fire watch for four hours for you know $100, something insane. It's an insane amount of money back in 1990. So I'm making money and I'm staying in the barracks, you know, I'm not going out in town all the time. And I'm watching these married guys in our platoon, spoiler alert, they're going out and, and, uh, having sex and doing all this other stuff. And I'm like being the good boy in the platoon and I'm the one that's wife's leaving him. Yeah. So that was kind of a hard pill to swallow. But I, and like I say in the book, I absolutely get it. There's no hard feelings. Obviously we've been married for 35 years now. Um, and we, we made it, but, I guess the point of it is, is sometimes you can see your way back to each other, even in the hardest of circumstances. And, uh, yes, I did feel like I had to get on with my life. I mean, I literally, I just remember crying myself into it. And here I am a Marine on deployment and, uh, but it's my first time away. I'm, I think I just turned 20 and, uh, my platoon mates were just like, Hey brother, you know, we got you. And I was, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm like, I don't know if I should cry in front of these dudes, but I just can't stop. You know, my wife, my wife is leaving me. My life's falling apart. Um, but yeah, somehow we found our way back to each other. Yeah. It's a great story. You know, there's, there's a story of forgiveness there, all, all kinds of, of uh, lessons there. It is, it is a great story and what y'all have done. Let's go to life as a bouncer, man. You had some, to me, some crazy, crazy experience, but maybe that that's maybe typical for a bouncer. You know, I didn't, I don't, I don't go out to bars. I never really have, except if, unless it was a seat, like a specific band, mm-hmm. you know, in college or something, just not my scene. Mm-hmm. Um, one reason is like, okay, there's trouble for sure going to happen there probably. So sure. just maybe stay away. But you, one, one thing you talk about is, and you were a bouncer also in Knoxville, mm-hmm. Tennessee. So you've got football, ex-football players, um, you got a lot of young guys, and so you got big guys, but they really didn't want just big guys. They wanted Marines, or they wanted people who knew how to scrap and had and didn't weren't afraid to. Is that yeah. the kind of people they're looking for? Yeah, and I say that in the book. You know, I remember uh, I worked at, my first job as a bouncer was while I was on active duty in the Marine Corps. 
Um, mm. So I only had to work like one night, Wednesday night during the week, which made Thursday really hard because at the time I was an instructor at the School of Infantry. So I would literally get off work at three o'clock and then not even sleep, get some coffee and go straight in to wake the privates up around four, four thirty, five o'clock, whatever. Get them on their feet. Then we'd go hump, train, you know, blow stuff up, whatever, and then come back and then crash Thursday night. And then Friday night, I was back in the club working Friday night, Saturday night. And then I started working some other topless establishments. But so, yeah, that that was a great uh, that was a great thing. And for for, you know, for me, it was a combatives laboratory. It's the only way I can I can describe it because you what you learn quick what works and what does not work. And not to put every single shopping mall sensei in America out of business, but the vast majority of what you learn does not apply. And uh, we've interviewed folks on our show, The American Warrior Show, and uh, one of them was a bouncer in New York City, or allegedly so. And the stories he told, I'm like, that just doesn't wash. I'm not mm-hmm. calling the guy a liar. I'm not going to say his name. Because he's just talking about striking people. I'm like, man, if you're striking people like that, your, your club's going to get sued. You're going to break an orbital bone in somebody's head. Somebody's going to fall and hit their head on something. It's just, you know, it, it's a form of standing grappling really is what works best. Uh, so that nobody gets hurt. You don't disrespect anybody because you start, you know, you, you throw hands with somebody and that now you've, you've disrespected them. If I put you in a control position and get you out of the club, all the while I'm having a conversation with you, hey, pal, just relax. We're going to get you over here to this corner. We're going to go outside. And I'm talking to them the whole way as best I can over the unch, unch, unch sound yeah. of the music. <laughs> but anyway, and um, but I did. I really enjoyed that job. Worked at a lot of clubs for a lot of years. Um there's no good retirement plan, unfortunately, for, for that <laughs> lifestyle, or I would have probably stayed in it, but I did enjoy it. Will you tell the story of the guy who, it seemed to be he very calmly told you he was going to kill you? Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Took two gentlemen out the side door, um, two black guys, Very uh, their language was peppered with urban lingo, if you will, hip-hop kind of thing, and... Got outside and, um, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm going back in because I want my dollar. And it was, okay, it's Wednesday night, it's ladies night, dollar night, whatever. I'm like, okay, so if I give you a dollar, you'll leave. Yeah, just give me a dollar. I'm okay, no problem. I'll reach in my pocket. Here you go, here's a dollar. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do anything. I'm, at this point, nothing bad has happened. Got him outside, give him his dollar, and then he swings. So he swings, I wrap him up into a standing rear naked choke and put him out. So he... I le- gently like him because his friend is still there. It's just me. So is it you friends. hit that um, the the carotid artery right here or something? Mm-hmm. And just okay. Yeah, it's a rear naked choke. You know, mm-hmm. three to five seconds they're out. So as he's going unconscious, I I even like cradle his head so his head doesn't bounce off the gravel parking lot. And that, meanwhile, his friend is there talking trash. So I didn't, you know, I may have a threat here. Not really sure. Put Are you back. by yourself at this I'm point? I'm by myself. Okay. Yeah, there, there's. We had parking lot security, too, so there's two or three bouncers roving, but we had multiple parking lots. Uh, So there's no telling where one might be, and I don't remember one anywhere near me that night. So he comes to that, and he gets up, and now he wants to go around, too. Well, this time, I I just pepper spray him. I'm like, I'm not doing this again. Get him up, walk him to his car, and on the way to his car... I'm even telling both of them are just talking trash, you know. And like I said, it, it's it's all the lingo that that African American men use against white guys, you know, when they really want to piss them off. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, no problem. Look, he's been your friend's been sprayed with pepper spray. You're gonna want to go home, put the air so the air can get in his face. And the whole time, I'm just politely having this conversation, just like you and I are having right now, as I'm walking to the car. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And. I said, you know, take him home, let him get a cool shower, get this kind of stuff off. Don't put any salves. Don't put. And the whole time they're just. I'm not. I can't even say it on the show. But are they drunk? Uh, I don't think so. No, they were just very upset. So they get in the car, and as they're about to roll away, he says, "I'm going to come back. You sprayed me in the face with mace. I'm going to come back here and spray you in the face with my gat." And in the '90s, that was the slang for a gun. So I'm like, hmm, that doesn't sound good. Nobody's ever said that before. So as they drive away in their silver Maxima, or, uh, I write the tag number down. 
And then I go inside and I'm like, hey, this is kind of happened. You know, everybody kind of helped me look out for a silver Maxima. And are you working the door? I'm on the door. Yeah. Okay. I was inside at the time, but now I've circled around and I'm on the door because I, I really like I want to see these these clowns coming in if they come in. I don't want to be standing on the dance floor watching people, you know, potentially getting in a fight and miss this thing. So mm-hmm. I'm sitting there and here comes this. Here comes a silver Maxima comes sliding in. And uh, I say in the book. And I don't remember the guy's name. I forget what I call him. It's not important. But he had been a football player at the University of Michigan. Guy was a giant. And he and I are just standing out there shooting the breeze. And um, the guy rolls up, the, the silver maximum rolls up, and the guy jacks around into a Glock and goes, uh, what's up, N-word? What's up, N-word? Says it a couple times. And I was leaning against the door at that, and I just kind of fell back in, and we had a big bar, like a, you know, Katie bar the door kind of thing. And I latch it over that door and run around. Anyway, so I, I call the police. Police come. They take a report. And they're waiting across the street just in case he shows back up. So right about five, ten minutes before closing time, about right, right around three o'clock. Here it goes again. And I know that that road right alongside the club is a dead-end road. So I'm like, okay. I run across the street, get the cops. They do a felony stop on the guy. And... Uh, the only person in the car this time before he, the bad, the guy with the gun was a passenger. Now there's only one guy in the car and it was the guy I sprayed. And he says, um, they do a felony stop on him. I watch it. all go down. The cops do a thorough search. And they're like, Hey man, without a, there, there's no gun in the car. No, I can't, we can't find a gun. And without a gun, you know, I don't have anything to hold him on. You can go to the courthouse and fill out whatever, you know, you want to do. I'm like, okay. So the guy kind of motions at me. So come here. He's sitting in his car. He's sitting in his car. He's like, come here. And I'm like, yeah, man, what's up? He's like, uh, and again, not a hint of hip-hop, urban slang. He says, this is crystal clear. He's like, you know what I see? I'm going to kill you. I said, I get it. And just so these kind of, and, and after that, I wore a bulletproof vest on the door every single time. And I lay out in the book what happened after that. But just just so you know, these things, kind of things are not, um, insignificant as I say in the book uh, a couple years later I got uh, hired to come around and train security staff at the clubs in Knoxville and the head of security at the underground was a guy named Mike Garner that's his real name and about four or five months after I came there he had a eerily similar incident with some uh, African-American street gangs in Knoxville and he threw them out and they said I'm gonna come back here and kill all you MFers and, you know, Mike Garner is kind of like, okay, yeah, all right. I hear this crap all the time. And they did. They came back and killed him and two other uh, bouncers. So it, it does happen in that profession. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't know of a, another way to do it. But my thing with bouncers, if you'll permit me that, is uh, being a bouncer is I'm, from that beating of the California kid, I despise bullies. I just absolutely yeah. cannot. I mean, you know, you want to bully somebody? Okay. Let's let's play this game. So for me, it's like I want people to come into the club and have a good, safe time. Do what consenting adults do. Go home, you know, and, and nobody gets hurt. And everybody has a good time. And I think that's what the club's paying you to do to make sure that kind of you're, mm-hmm. you're the you're the sober adult in the room, if you will. And sometimes the sober adult has to ask people to leave politely. Sometimes the sober adult has to make people leave politely. And uh, so, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't like it. I didn't. I don't like bullies, and if I could stay here and be the sober adult, and make sure everybody has a great time, and the club makes money, and everybody is happy, then that's what I'd like to do. What are some of your moves? What are the moves that you use the most as a, as a mm. bouncer? Because you talked about not striking people, mm-hmm. and I know you, you you put this guy out, but well, um, I've been doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu since I don't know 2017, and I've done judo and Aki Jiu Jitsu and Shotokan Karate, Okinawan Freestyle, done a lot of stuff, and was a Marine Corps uh, martial arts instructor. There's no sexy technique that's going to work 100% of the time. Let's get that out of the way. There's no dim mock death touch. There's none of that crap. Um, However, there is a really, really good move that works, that has an incredible efficacy, and it's something that I've never, ever, ever been taught in the dojo, not once. From training since I was 10 years old in 1980 till last week. I've never, ever seen this since they do it. And it works incredibly well. And it's a spin and choke. 
and it's uh i'm just you know how men will do the monkey dance i think as rory miller calls it chest out alpha uh, primate alpha male kind of thing you know bumping chest and pushing each other well if you receive the push the person's pushing you really what they're communicating to you is i don't want to fight you i'm posturing if they want to fight you they're going to swing but really, mm-hmm. we're, we're in a pot. This is a posturing thing. Uh, so, but if I've got to get you out of here and you push me, that's fine. You're going to think I'm going to push you back and you'll see them kind of like brace up. It's not like they're putting their hands up to protect their head like they're a professional. Some knucklehead on the street. So I'm pushing you into a standing rear naked choke. And anybody, you, you can look it up. I think there is a video out there somewhere I found online one time. Because a lot of me and Mike Seeklander did a did an entire podcast where we talked about our bouncing life and we mentioned this and everybody was like, man, what is that spin and choke you guys were talking about? That, that sounds like, you know, the, the this amazing <laughs> thing it is. And I don't, and there's a video out there of an executive protection guy doing it. And I'm like, there it is. But, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find it. Now, a lot of guys, the taller bouncers, I'm, I'm five, nine on a good day, but the guys who are six plus, they could do some form of a uh, either a half Nelson or a full Nelson to get to get compliance and submission and get somebody out. But I was never tall enough to pull that off. But I mean, I've taken people out in arm bars that they will tell you you can't do that. Well, I've I've done it multiple times. Um, and, and you swept the legs or something like that, right? Swept the leg, knock their legs out from under. So somehow it seemed like you talked about that. No, no, because I don't want to. I mean, I've I've leg kicked people just almost to get their attention or if I've got their friend wrapped up in a standing rear neck of choke and I'm moving and a buddy's coming in at me, you know, you can front thrust kick somebody off of you. But really that's just to, to create and maintain a reactionary gap. I need time and I need space between me and other people around me. So it's, it's, it's almost like a, a punctuation point, you know, like stay back. I've already told you, cause I got my hands tied up with this guy. Yeah. I don't have a hand to defend myself. So if I had to kick somebody, then they're going to get kicked. But I don't want to go to the ground. And I'm a I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. I've been for years and years and years. But I do not want to go to the ground in a nightclub. That's the last place you want to be because you really can't see anybody down there. It's so mm-hmm. dark. The laser lights and the smoke and stuff like that, going to the ground is absolutely an anthema. I need to keep them up. I need to keep them moving. I need to get to the door. I need to make sure that people see me in case something I need backup, you know. And you never really want to start stuff in the club anyway. So a lot of time when you're wrapping somebody up, it's because they're already fighting. And really, that's a screw up on you. You should have saw this coming. At the underground, we'd stand on these things that are about three foot tall, right on the edge of the dance floor so we can look down. And you can you can see the fights before they start. Like if the, if the crowd's moving to the DJ's move, music, it has almost like an ocean wave kind of movement to the crowd. And then all of a sudden, you'll see this group that ain't moving. Rock stuff. Like, why are they not moving? That's not a guy and a girl. Hmm. That's two dudes. You know, they're, this is not going. This is not going good. And they're moving their heads and talking real close. Like, okay, let's start moving to this and see if we can get these guys out to the door, separate doors, and chill everybody out. But anyway, the bouncer thing was fun. I had fun writing about it because, like I said, it's it's an occupation that not many people will have ever done. Yeah. Or certainly done it in the place that we did it in, and that is. America's largest Marine Corps base is Camp Lejeune. We had, I worked the hottest nightclub in that, in uh, right outside of Camp Lejeune, and then the largest topless bar right outside of Camp Lejeune. So, I thought people would find those experiences kind of interesting. Oh yeah. So, so I chose to absolutely. <laughs> well, another time you had your, you were th- threatened to be killed as a corrections officer. Oh, yeah. We tell that story how they had you know, a guy on the inside had gotten somebody on the outside to follow you home. And, and you like, you told Lisa, Hey, time to move. Can I throw a little bit more? That's not in the book. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, I looked that guy up and I actually, I really, I use his real name in the book. His real name was Arthur. I don't say his last name in the book, but I caught that after the book was done. I'm like, man, I should have changed his name. Because Arthur is his real name. I won't say his last name. Well, after my dealing with him, and I'll explain that just in a second, he ended up killing a guy for money. Uh, shot a guy in, in, in the projects for like $5,000. Broad daylight with a forty-five execution style right in Knoxville. 
So he was quickly caught and given the death penalty. So by this time, I'm, I'm kind of watching him every now and then. I'm just kind of Googling his name, you know, as, as the years went on. I'm like, wow, he got the death penalty. Holy crap. Okay, I don't have to worry about this guy anymore <laughs> coming back and getting me. And then it was uh, overturned in appeals, even though they had all the evidence. You know, they had like, he did it in front of like 20 people. Ballistics, every, they had everything. And I don't know why it got overturned. And I think he's back on the street now. So if you're watching this, Arthur, you know who you are. Uh, but this, this guy, like I said in the book, most people you could deal with in basic human respect works a long way. Now, they're, they're criminals, and they're still going to work their angle on you, whether they like you as a corrections officer or not. Hey, man, it's just like, this is what I do, man. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a thief, and that's what thieves do. And I'm, if I can steal from, from you or anybody, or if I can get over on you and predate you, then that's what I'm going to do. No harm. You know, that's just my job. So I looked at it like that. That's fine. But this one particular inmate, uh, he lived in the hole. I was the pod officer. My uh, second half of my career in corrections was as the pod officer in the disciplinary segregation pod, what most people call the hole. So I was a pod officer in the hole because I did a good job, and the chief was like, man, I want that Marine Corps discipline that you're, you're doing there, Brown. I want you to take it to the hole. So, uh, and I dealt with everybody in there with basic human common courtesy, you know, and, and professionalism and, and respect. And this one guy did not, it didn't work with him. He was just completely ungovernable. And, you know, you'd try to be respectful to the guy and it was just MF for this, blue-eyed bitch that. I mean, it was just really, really abusive. Well, according to our handbook, any one of those is, is, is uh, considered verbal abuse. So I'd write him up for every single one of them. We'd have a little hearing. They'd bring in a panel. He would cuss them out too. They'd give him 15 more days or 30 more days in the hole. He'd cuss all the way in from the panel, and we would rinse and repeat every single month, every single week, you know. Any interaction with him was going to end that way. So one day, uh, one of my trustees comes out, who's also a snitch for me, and he says, um, he's acting like he's sweeping. He says, hey, Officer Brown, uh, Arthur's got your address. I didn't have my address because I lived like 40 miles away, right? purposefully yeah and uh he's like no he does and i'm like yeah he goes you remember franklin another guy that was his real name he says you remember franklin he uh he got out and arthur's people on the street because arthur was the, the leader of the the crip gang arthur's people followed you home he says you drive a red jeep true and uh you live in a trailer on the side of a hill in Sevier county i'm like okay that's also true i mean you got poker face going here now, oh right? totally i'm like i don't know what you're talking about bro what are you talking about? And he goes, I've got your address. Everybody in here's got your address. I'm like, let me see it. So he comes up and he's the way the inmates would we would pass information to each other is toilet paper rolls. And I, I don't know if it made sense in the book, but when an inmate wanted a new uh, more toilet paper, they would have to bring you the empty cardboard roll, and then you would give them a full roll. Well, the empty cardboard roll makes a perfect place to to place a note because I don't know if you can see that. It's laying this way. You can look through it and really can't see it, but you stick your fingers and slide out the note. So there it is. And then if I wanted to know mm -hmm. something, I would slide a note into them and I'd give them the roll. So the thing comes in, I slide it out, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is my address. So I called my wife. I literally, I'm like, this ain't me, bro. You know, Frank, Franklin took, took uh, Arthur's people's money. This ain't my address. But I called my wife, and I'm like, hey, man, time to move. And that was on a Wednesday or Thursday, and we literally packed and were gone that, that Saturday morning. We were out of there. Yeah, but I want to know, what did you do in between then? I uh, slept with one eye open, to be yeah. honest with you. I mean, I had to. My uncle lived nearby. He lived at the foot of that. Uh, he lived at the house next door to me. So I told Joey, I'm like, hey, man, can you help me here? And we had a dog outside. Joey's dog was outside, and it's a big black dog on a chain, you know, kind of thing. This beautiful East Tennessee stuff. So I'm hoping on that, and and until I can get gone, because I'm like, man, I just, I think I can, I think I can get out of here in time, and we did, but it was a nerve wracking situation, and I'm like, I can't be putting my family yeah. in this kind of thing. Uh huh. And, and as I talk about in the book, and and uh, the IRA killed more than two dozen uh, prison guards in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. So it, it it's something that's uh, commonly used against corrections officers. Let's go to the police academy. Okay. I, the story of you driving in uh -huh. and 
you, you know, hey, I'm number one. Will you <laughs> tell that story? And what was the, the thinking behind that? Yeah, so as I say in the book, uh, I had done well in the Corrections Academy and was president of my class. And I did well in the Special Operations Academy. And, and then, okay. Uh, but at the time, you know, it seems like I was struggling to make ends meet, probably like a lot of young couples. You know, we had our second child was on the way. And I'm like, you know, kind of those those negative self-talk I'm like look at look at you brown you know you got no you got a barely a high school education you got a wife you got a, a child on the way you know your your jeep you don't have the money to fix your freaking jeep how are you gonna you had to i had to borrow my buddy's 1968 international scout which is just ugly bondoed I'm, i would love to have it now but at the time it was just a piece of junk no heater in it no radio and i think it was like i don't know february in, in tennessee and I'm driving up to the police academy two hours away or whatever, and I'm cold, and I might even have a blanket over my legs. I mean, that's how cold it was, and uh, I'm like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to go in here. I'm going to kick ass. I'm going to finish number one. I don't know how I'm going to do it yet, but I'm going to show all the doubters that Rich Brown's a real deal. So uh, I think where you're maybe wanting to go with this is when I, I'm like, how am I going to do this? I'm one of <laughs> 80 dudes coming to this. And I'm sure everybody, all these alpha male types and alpha female types, they're probably all thinking the same thing. How will I stand out? So when I pulled into the parking lot, I started noticing the parking spot numbers were numbered 28, 20, 27, 26, 25. And I'm going, Oh, there's a parking spot. Number one. So I got up and it's like right near the door, but it's not a handicapped spot. And, uh, and I just, I guess I got lucky. You know, and that that was not that guy's assigned parking spot, but it was a Honda Accord, I think a green one, I say in the book. And I just went in. I, I was very early, and I started knocking on classroom doors. Hey guys, sorry to bother you. I, I'm I'm Rich Brown. Uh, who's driving the green Honda Accord? Oh, nobody in this classroom. I'm so sorry to bother you guys. Shut the door and go to the next classroom. Hey guys, sorry to bother y'all. Green Honda Accord parking spot number one. Anybody? Oh, you sir, can, can I speak to you, please? And he comes out, and I'm, like, I'm so sorry to do this to you, man, but you're in my spot. I am? Yeah, bro. I'm sorry, man. I hate to do this, but I really need you to move. Honest mistake. Honest yeah. mistake. It can happen to anybody if you don't want So he moves us, and I, and I slide in there. I'm like, okay, I got one win down. Let's see if we can turn this into two. So then, you know, I, I went up to the, to the uh, fourth floor, I think is where the police academy was. And, and I go into the locker room, and the locker room, the male locker room, same shtick. I go to number one, it's already got like a lock on it. I'm like, hey, man, who's got uh, who's got their stuff in locker number one? And this good-looking dude stands up, and he's really fit. He was a Navy EOD guy. And um, he stands up, that's my stuff. It's almost like he knew what's going on because yeah. he kind of stood up and looked at me like, are you kidding me? That's my stuff. I'm like, bro, so sorry, man. I got locker number one. It's the same thing. Honest mistake. If you don't mind, I hate to do this and be a jerk, but I need you to move your stuff. And I just pause. I'm not going to talk. I'm just going to stand there and flatly wait for you to get your stuff out of locker number one. And um, and then I had another a bit of good luck. So I'm, I'm now I'm feeling kind of confident. Okay, I got, I got parking spot number one. I got locker number one. I walk into the hallway, and this is where I got lucky, Thad. I happened to be wearing one of my Marine Corps instructor shirt, shirts from back in the day. And uh, the one of the police academy instructors says, were you an instructor in the Marine Corps? I'm like, yes, sir, I was. And you're in charge till I fire your ass. He's like, uh, he says, give him uh, sheets and a blanket, you know, go make your bed and come out and get me. As soon as they toss me two white f flat sheets and a, and a green wool blanket, and one for the pillowcase. I'm like, I know what this is. This is the Marine Corps. You know, this is the teach how to make your mm -hmm. racks day one in boot camp. And as an instructor, I made my privates make these things perfectly, right? This is a job interview, Thad. I know how to do this. So I ran down, made made the rack just absolutely breathtakingly perfect. I mean, measured everything. So it's a six-inch fold here and 12 inches of that. And, you know, come back, got him. And, sir, you know, and I reported to him like I would as, as a Marine, you know. He goes, looks at it, and like, you know, I want them all to look like this. So now I'm, I, I, I'm on a roll, you know. I'm like, okay, I didn't get fired right out of the gate. 
he's liking what he's seeing. And I, I went around, and as I say in the book, you know, I knew I couldn't get every rack this way. And I'm a delegator by, by, by my personality. So I start looking for who's probably a Marine here. I'm looking at the haircut, the silly little haircut we have. I'm looking at the way they're carrying themselves, back erect, shoulders, you know, the whole shebang, collared shirt. They didn't, they didn't check into the police academy looking like some guy off the street. They look really squared away, and they're in perfect marine corps civilian attire and i'm like you a marine corps i was yeah cool come here man let's find another marine what are we doing i said well i'm staff sergeant brown because that was my rank in the reserves <laughs> <laughs> i'm just a recruit like you and i'm like i'm staff sergeant brown okay so we're clear and we're you're number one and yeah, i'm number one and we need to get some other dudes here to be squad leaders and we quickly round up a couple more dudes so now we've got four former marines and they're all thankfully junior to me in rank not that it meant anything, but they didn't know that. <laughs> and that's the thing about Marines. They don't know that. You know, you, you, if, even today, I'm a 54-year-old man. If I ran into a colonel, I'm like, hey, sir, how are you? I'm like, I've been retired for 11 years, Dad. I don't need to do that. But <laughs> it's just beat into us. Anyway, so I says, um, I need you to take X number of students. You take X number of students, and let's, let's divide and conquer. We got the, all the beds made. We got everybody in the same exact uniform. They told us what to what we should come up there with, the, the blue slacks and the blue shirt and all this kind of stuff. Got everybody in the same thing, and we did it in like 20 minutes. And it just, they didn't ask for any of that, so they really liked it. The instructors did, and I got to keep my job and ended up being the honor graduate, but that was a lot of fun, man. I, not everybody likes going to those kind of professional academies. I never had a problem with it, you know. The, to me, the it's pretty easy. I'm not here. Everything else in my life can kind of melt away. My wife is really good at just taking on everything when I'm in these situations that I just get to be, well, not that I do it anymore, but I just get to focus on the mission in front of me, you know? Such a good story. <laughs> we got to cover the Gulf War, something okay. from it. I want to read a statement here. First of all, you talk about your music selection. Mm -hmm. You've got about uh, eight years on me. I got a sister that graduated in 84 mm -hmm. and I got a, all the way to a younger brother graduated in 99. So I've got this, this great period of, of music. So ACDC is like definitely my childhood mm -hmm. quiet riot. Definitely my childhood. Yeah. And so you've got some, I think you got tears for fears in here. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to rule, rule the world. So it's really cool how you, 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 you mix the, these, the music and some of the songs you may be hearing, listening to at the time on your Walkman. Uh, to the to the event, and so here you've got your your new Sony Waltman had three cassettes: ACDC's The Razor's Edge, Whitney Houston's Whitney, and Mariah Carey's debut album Mariah Carey. So, and I say, interesting. Okay, you're judging me yeah, yeah. as you're reading this, but that is a fact. And what, uh, if I could, Thad, what's funny is the censors, the Saudi censors, before they would let those tapes come into the country, they had Whitney put on like a burqa. Oh. No, I mean, they had just done that with the, they had blacked it in so you couldn't see her body. Uh -huh. And the same thing with Mariah Carey. So when you bought the tape, I wish I still had them because they're kind of comical now. They had uh, these these women, instead of showing any of their body, that all blacked out. And I didn't even know who Mariah Carey was. She was brand new, but I was just so, I needed a change of music selection. I, I want to read a statement here. Y'all, you got, you got attacked by some starving Kuwaitis. Mm-hmm. And you said, uh, here, here's listen. one of them grabbed a grenade still hanging off my load-bearing vest as another pulled on the retention strap of my, of my boonie hat, strangling me in the process. At that moment, I understood what to do. If I didn't fight back, these people would kill me. I grabbed my rifle, wrapped the sling around my wrist to secure it, and then stabbed the muzzle into the eye of the nearest man. Then as he fell to the ground, screaming in agony, I struck the next one, the muzzle shattering his teeth. Then the next one grabbed me, and I met him with the same strike to the face. Then the next man that touched me got the butt of my rifle to his temple. I fought with a ferocity I didn't know I had, and after a few more muzzle strikes, the men began running for their lives. I was screaming obscenities at the top of my lungs and shaking violently. The Humvee, Humvee cranked back to life as they began to scatter, and we sped away from the scene. What are the feelings and the, the smells and the emotions you remember from then? 
Well, to put this thing in context, you know, we had, it was, we having a great day. And we had dr- dr- driven through the bombed out streets of Kuwait. And uh, that was kind of an interesting thing. We went to this, uh, the army had set up this little makeshift supply depot near the embassy. So we had gotten all this, and the Marine Corps would call it ghee dunk, you know, or pogey bait, you know, just chow that, and snacks and stuff. So we're just, it's going great. And we're driving back and I'm like, this is beautiful. And then also the Humvee crashed. So that was one thing. And then the, as I say, and the, the thing, Pepsi's rained down on me. We were just the back of the Humvee where I was by myself. It just came down on me and uh, I'm like, okay, something bad just happened. We've been in an accident. I don't know what or why, but this, the, um, the B-52 strikes would leave literally, we're in a large structure right now, right? That, so there would be craters in the road this big. And in America, you know, where there's a giant crater in the road and a semi could fall into it, you would have green, you'd have orange tape and all these other kind of construction things around it to mark it off. There's nothing here. You're just going to fall in. So I thought maybe the driver had hit something like that in the road and there was tanks and all kinds of stuff littering. It's like a Mad Max kind of situation. And then as soon as we wreck, this this horde comes around. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of military-age males. I didn't remember seeing a woman in the crowd at all. And in the same time as, you know, I'm 20, 21 years old, I don't know if these are enemy. Who are these people and what do they want? And I'm trying to converse with them, and they're saying something to me that I think is Arabic at the time, but I'll tell you what it was here in just a second. I don't name it in the book, and I probably should have because it's somewhat comical. And I'm trying to, like, what do you want? And they're pulling on me, trying to get me out. And with the minute one of them grabs a grenade on my vest, I'm like, oh, God. You know, I'm trying to get his hand off. And then then somebody grabbed my cover, and they're pulling it, and the retention strap is pulling my head back. And then the guy with the grenade is pulling it this way. So I'm like, oh, this is not, this is bad. So I just rolled into like a fetal position, grabbed the rifle, wrapped the sling around my um, wrapped the sling around my wrist, and just I remember zeroing in on the eye of this guy in front of me and just taking the muzzle for all I had, and I, and again just like before, I'm like I want to put it through his head, and so I did that, and he went down, but that didn't stop the crowd. So then the next guy you got blinded it. him. Oh, I'm sure there's a one-eyed man in Kuwait somewhere <clears throat> yeah. right now. And then the next dude, it was in the teeth, you know, not that I was aiming there, but I just remember seeing his teeth shatter and pulling the, pulling the rifle back. And, uh, it, and then after a few of these really uh, savage hits, they started kind of backing away and the Humvee cranked up and we got the hell out of there. But it was, uh, I don't know that I've ever been that scared because I thought, and in reality, if I would have gotten pulled out of that thing, the guys didn't know. It ain't like they went 100 yards down the road like, let's go see if Lance Corporal Brown's okay. Brown, you still back there? No. They didn't stop until we got back to back to the battalion area. Um, but what had happened was, I, I don't think I say this in the book. Maybe I do. The Kuwaitis had watched us go, and then on the way back, these starving Kuwaitis that had – got to think about this. At that time, uh, they were starving to death. They had – eaten all the animals of the Kuwaiti Zoo. That's how hungry they were. They had trapped and eaten all the animals. So they broke into it, took it over. Yeah, so these okay. people were starving to death. They had drink, you know, no water. They were in bad shape. So they linked arms in the middle of the road, and uh, the guy driving the Humvee, instead of just ramming into him, he hit the uh, concrete median and crashed the Humvee, which he probably should have just kept going. He should have maybe slowed down and just hit, hit some of them. Because it really made it worse. And uh, the first sergeant, the staff and COs and officers still had, we had turned in all of our ball ammunition because the war was technically over. So I, but they hadn't turned in grenades yet, which is crazy. So I had grenades, but no 5.56 ball ammunition for my M16. But there was two staff and COs up in the front and they had their Breda M9s that were loaded. So one of the Kuwaitis, and I don't say this in the book, reached through and grabbed the gunny's uh, pistol that was still in his shoulder holster. And the gunny just started biting pieces out of the dude's hand. And the first sergeant jumped out with his pistol and started shooting at the ground and over their heads. And that's what ultimately got them to scatter, maybe more than my, my muzzle strikes. But it's one of those things, man. Starving, desperate people are dangerous people. Yeah. You know, it's like trying to save somebody who's drowning. Like, they're going to drown you, too. And, I'm, and they were innocent Kuwaitis, and, you know, it just, it was what it was, but. You, you've, you've buried dead bodies. 
you've you've buried body parts, like really just mangled, torn apart bodies. Um, you know, you, you you've described some of that in detail. You've been through a lot of experiences that most people don't go through. What do you, as a father, what are some things, and, and you may go to a, reference a different period of, of life, but I think of like when they're going off to college or mm-hmm. you know, as young adults. Right. What are some, what's some advice that you give your kids? You've got sons and da- daughters or, or a daughter and a stepdaughter or something, but what, what's some advice you give them? And that's another one. I saw that question in there. I was like, what advice do you give them? I mean, I look at it probably different than other people. I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm going to, I'm going to try to teach you how to think and how to process the stuff that you're seeing. I had a real good friend uh, named Mark and Mark is like, like, Rich, I'm, I'm building this book, uh, you know, so that I can give it to my daughter when I, when she goes off to college, I'm like, that's pretty cool. But really it's like, it, it was stuff like you're telling her how you would do these things. And that's not really, she's not you, you're you. And I, I think I can't say, now don't go out at night and, and don't do this and don't do that. It's like, no, I'm not going to put guardrails on your life. Life is unpredictable. And on a long, as they say in the book Fight Club, you know, on a long enough timeline, everybody's survivability falls to zero. I mean, if I listen to the people, uh, my mom, you know, she's like, she wanted me to be a pharmacist, right? <laughs> they wear a lab coat and they, you know, nobody's hurting people, a pharmacist, right? But I did want to go into harm's way and I did want to serve my country and serve my community and do these things. And, and if, if this is the, the stuff that other people don't want to do or they're afraid of doing, then I'll go do that. And, um, so I think I, I thought a lot about that. My kids did martial arts. They did team sports. Uh, they went to private Christian schools. So, you know, I felt like, you know, when I would do things like, uh, do you know what a TDG is? No. Okay. Tactical decision game. So, you know, whether it's laying out a map or let me, let me provide you with a scenario you're here and these are the situations going on around you. What do you think is the best course of action? So my youngest son and I would work through these on a Saturday or Sunday. And maybe that's the reason to this day, you know, he's a cybersecurity research scientist with the government, but he absolutely loves role-playing games. Cause we, we did that a lot, not like dungeon and dragons, but like a real, let's, let's look at this in terms of this is a military thing. This is a police thing. What is the ethical, moral and tactically correct thing to do here? What do you think? Hmm. And then do some of that Socratic irony and, and help walk him to maybe a right decision so that he has the aha moment himself. And I'm not just giving him the answer to the problem. And um, so I think for me, it was more of those kind of things, you know, whether it's my son or my daughters, here's a can of pepper spray. Here's how it works. Let's get ID, IDPA target. Let me show you how to use it. Now the book says a one second spray. Nope. You're going to hose them till they go down. It's like with a firearm. And a lot of people say that, you know, I've had complete, a lot of success with pepper spray. You want to know the secret move? There you go. Pepper spray. You're welcome. You know, when I, in all seriousness. Um, but if you'll see a lot of cops, and I'll go back to the thing because you, your question is great, but a lot of police officers will say, oh, that stuff doesn't work. Well, yeah, if you go, like they teach in the academy, it didn't work. Well, yeah, because you sprayed him here. Put it in his eyes and his nose, and I promise you, he's going to work. So hold the trigger down until he does what you tell him to do. How do you carry your pepper spray? Well, there's a couple different ways. Back then, I carried it in my back pocket. I carried a, uh, as a bouncer back then, it was a flashlight in the back, stuffed down our belt, and then a, a can of pepper spray in the back pocket and a radio on. But nowadays, you know, I probably have some in my truck. I don't necessarily carry it with me all the time in my pocket like I should, which is insane. I mean, because it's such a beautiful intermediate force option. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Another thing great about pepper spray, since we're talking about it, is if I punch you and cause damage, and it could eat you, that that simple assault could all of a sudden be aggravated into an aggravated assault. Now I'm looking at five or six years because I broke an orbital bone, or you fell down and struck your head, and period of unconsciousness, and all these things could make it bad for you. Pepper spray is simple assault. If everything goes wrong in court, and they and they decide that the, that the proportionality was unjustified or the use of, of force was unjustified. At the most you're looking at is is simple assault, and the pain relative to simple assault, uh, if there was a 
a chart on it is is off the chart. I mean, mm-hmm. The pain is just incredible. So yeah, and make sure the ch- the child has the tools. But the, the the tool I want them to have to protect themselves and guide themselves is really the the six inches between their ears. Can you use that? Can you use that to make a friend or get yourself in the situation that you want to be in, or get yourself out of a situation you want to be in? And it worked for my oldest son. You know, I think he was at college maybe at the end of his sophomore year, and he started college as a seventeen year old, and they they had him be an RA at his dorm. And he was like the youngest guy on the floor, but he's the one that that has the level of maturity to to follow the the school's guidance and take care of things. And so Lisa and I pat ourselves on the back on that. Um, but yeah, I've got four amazing kids, and every one of them is different, as you know, right? Um, as parents, we think we have an influence, and really the peers have a lot of influence, and then their their own innate personality is going to shine through as well. What other advice or anything else you want to cover, you know, about, about you, about the American Warrior Society, about your, your podcast or uh, the book, anything else? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Thad. Uh, Like I said, you know, this is the first time sitting down and meeting you, but as soon as I saw you, I'm like, it just seems like I've known you forever. (laughs) Right. That's that's the neat thing about social media, perhaps. And uh, no, thank you so much for what you do. The people you've talked to, I've, I've watched so many of your interviews, uh, you recently had on a gentleman who was a um, Medal of Honor winner. I mean, just what a, you know, you have a, you have a gift with, with these conversations. So God bless you for that. <laughs> as far, as far as that, the, uh, the you can pick up a copy of on violence of routers. You can find it on Amazon everywhere that you buy your books is it's there. It, it was really something that I wanted to leave a legacy. You know, uh, as I say in the book, I'm from, illiterate Scots-Irish folks. My grandfather, Ralph Brown, couldn't read and write, never did, but he valued education. He wished he would have had that because he was the oldest of nine kids and never had an opportunity to go to school. Father was an alcoholic and he had to go out and make money. So I wanted to leave a legacy because what would I give? I mean, I would give everything I have in the bank today, right now, Roth IRA, clean it out to have a book like this about my grandfather's 20s, you know, and his life story. It's a, it would be immeasurable to me. So if I can leave something like this as a legacy, and I think as parents and, and fathers and mothers, I, I've journaled, you know, I've got stacks of journals. And because yeah, I always wanted to be like, if something happens to me, God forbid, especially when I started it when I was a police. Well, I started it when I was in war and I continued it as a cop because I never know if this is going to be the last traffic stop I ever make. And uh, if, if I do die. What would my children know? How would I ever have an impact? Well, you can read my words and hopefully you can gain Mm -hmm. something from who I was and the way I would handle certain situations. So that's really all it was. It was ability to exercise that demon. And if people find the book humorous and funny and and light, I mean, that's all it is. Because when I reread my journals from this time, Thad, it was I had to confront the young man on the page. And as I say in the very beginning, a lot of the stuff that you'll read and hear about my 20s is anathema to who I am now. However, if I'm going to write this honestly, I have to go back and confront the, the ridiculousness of the stuff I wrote in my journals when I was a young man. But I did, and I'm glad I did. But that's one thing that's so great about it is you you did share that. There's there's embarrassing moments. There's there's kind of maybe gross moments. I mean, you you there's it's just it's amazing and so it's almost it says uncensored on the book and it it seems uncensored to me and so i think it is it is a valuable valuable work that you've done and and apparently more is coming it needs to since this is only what 26 years worth yeah yeah and um you know it it is highly redacted highly censored you know like one of the questions that you sent was did some of the pre-reads like Seeklander read it. He knew me, you know, we've been best friends mm-hmm. since 1990 and my brother and some other folks that knew me like, man, you didn't, you left out so many stories. What I'm like, yeah, man, I, I can't tell that story <laughs> for a whole host of reasons. Uh, some of them legal, some of them moral, some of them, you know, it's just, it's, I just can't go down that road, but no. Um, so this is a highly redacted <clears throat> censored version of, of a guy who had an interesting Interesting life. Mm-hmm. Well, you've you've lived a life of service. Yes, and not only not only from the military, and from um, corrections officer, 
the Red Cross, which we didn't even get to, um, with what you do with American Warrior Society now, I'll have links to that. I mean, that's, that's, uh, y'all, you've got a lot more podcast episodes than I've got. And uh, you do, you do great work there. You train people to use their heads and, and how to take care of themselves, and their families. Anything else that you want to highlight from the American Warrior Society? No, American Warrior Society.com, American Warrior Show.com. We have some amazing sponsors, uh, which make it all possible. By the way, sponsors. So I have vitamins that Mike used to promote. Oh, SWAT fuel. SWAT fuel. I used to get that because I had trouble commuting and I was working a lot Mm -hmm. and it was getting dangerous. I said, I got to have something. And I don't really drink caffeine. And and if it was just a Coke, it wasn't enough for me. Mm. SWAT fuel did it for me. It'll do it. All right. (laughs) Yeah. That stuff was, was real. Dr. Daniels, Nikki, and he, he teaches inside our training vault. He's a SWAT doc and an ER doctor. So inside our training vault, if you become a member of the American Warrior Society, you know, we have everything, white belt to blue belt, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. We have handguns, low light shotgun, less lethal. Everything is in there. I mean, people say, well, why would you pay a monthly membership fee to get this kind of content when it's, it's a lot of it's on YouTube? I'm like, oh, you get what you pay for. You know, YouTube's entertainment, and it is entertaining. I love YouTube. I love to see what they're going to blow up this week on Demolition Ranch, you know, and that kind of stuff. But understand, that's not training, and that's not vetted. Uh, the things that we do and have done are all in there for you. You know, Mike was an instructor at Fletzy and the the first, you know, took over the Air Marshals Academy. And we were both involved in the um, United States um, Shooting Association. And we've distilled all this stuff into the American Warrior Society. And then we have, we've been blessed to have a lot of amazing guests. You were a guest on our show way back when. So we've, we've had, a, um, we've been doing this since 2014. Yeah, almost 10 years, the American Warrior Society, American Warrior Show. Uh, and then, of course, I was with the Red Cross and stuff. But now my my job, if I have one, is to be the co-host of the American Warrior Show and, and be the kind of the guy behind the scenes for the American Warrior Society. Yeah, and it's a unique setup, too, because you, you broadcast it live normally, yeah. don't you? And so people log on and they start commenting, and so yeah, it's really good. Uh, it's been an honor having you. Thank well, thanks, you, brother. I, I knew it. we would not have a problem finding things to talk about. If only we had a few hours. Yeah. But uh, get the book, folks. There's there's a ton here. I'll probably add something to it when I do an intro or something for this episode. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, Thad. Yeah, appreciate it.